Three men in a boat to say nothing of the dog by Jerome K. Jerome. Chapter 4. The third question, objections to paraffin oil as an atmosphere, advantages of cheese, a travelling companion, a married woman deserts her home, further provision for getting upset, I pack, cursedness of toothbrushes, George and Harris pack, awful behaviour on Montmorency, retire to rest. Then we discussed the food question. George said, begin with breakfast. George is so practical. Now for breakfast we shall want a frying pan. Harris has said it was indigestible, but he merely urged him not to be an ass, and George went on. A teapot and a kettle and methylated spirit stove. No, said George, with a significant look, and Harris and I agreed. We'd taken up an oil stove once, but never again. We liked living in an oil shop that week. It oozed. I never saw such a thing as paraffin oil is. Never saw such a thing as paraffin oil is to ooze. We kept it in the nose of the boat, and from there it oozed down to the rudder, impregnating the whole boat, everything in it on its way, and it oozed over the river and saturated the scenery, spoilt the atmosphere. Sometimes a westerly oily wind blew, at times an easterly wind oily wind, and sometimes it blew a northerly oily wind. May be a southerly oily wind, but whether it came from the Arctic snows or was waste raised in the waste of the desert sands, it came alike as a us laden with fragrance of paraffin oil. Now that oil oozed up and ruined the sunset. As for the moonbeams, they positively reeked of paraffin. We tried to get away from it at, Mar- at Marlow. We left the bridge, boat by the bridge, and took a walk through the town to escape it, but it followed us. The whole town was full of oil, passed through the churchyard. It seemed as if the people had been buried in oil. High Street stunk of oil. We wondered how many people could live in it. We walked miles upon miles out burning away. There was no use. The country was steeped in oil. At the end of that trip, we went together at midnight in our lonely field under a bursted oak. And took an awful oath. We had been swearing for the whole week about the thing in an ordinary middle class way, but this was a swell affair. An awful oath. Never to take paraffin oil with us in a boat again, except for course in case of sickness. Therefore, in the present instant, we confined ourselves to methylated methylated spirit, even if it's bad enough. You get methylated pie, methylated cake, but methylated spirit is more wholesome than and taken in the system in large quantities, then paraffin oil. 
Rather than eat breakfast things, George suggested eggs and bacon, which were easy to cook, cold meat, tea, bread and butter, and jam. For lunch, he said, we could have biscuits, cold meat, bread and butter, and jam, but no cheese. Cheese at all makes too much of itself. It wants the whole boat to itself. It goes through the hamper. It gives a cheesy flavour to everything else there. You can't tell whether you're eating apple pie or German sausage or strawberries and cream. It all seems cheese. There's too much odour about cheese. I remember a friend of mine buying a couple of cheeses at Liverpool. Splendid cheeses they were, ripe and mellow, with 200 horsepower scent about them. It might have been warranted to carry three miles. Look a man over at 200 yards. I was in Liverpool at the time. My friend said he didn't, if I didn't mind, he, he w- would get me to take them back with me to London, as he should not be coming up for a day or two himself. He did not think the cheeses ought to be kept much longer. Oh, with pleasure, dear boy, I replied with pleasure. I called for the cheeses and took them away in a cab. It was a round shekel fare, dragged along by not-need-needed broken-winded sombolidus, which this own, his owner is a moment of enthusiasm, during the conversation referred to as a horse. I put the cheeses on top. He started off as a shamble. A shamble, and would have done credit to the swiftest steamroller ever built. It all went merry as a funeral bell till we turned the corner. There, the wind carried a whiff of the cheese full on our steed. It woke him up with a snort of terror. He dashed off at three miles an hour. The wind still blew in his direction, and before we reached the end of the street, he was laying himself out at a rate of nearly four miles an hour, leaving the cripples and stout old ladies near, simply nowhere. Took two porters as well as driver to hold him in the sta- in that station. Do not think they would have done it even then, had it not been had not one of the men in the presence of mind to put a handkerchief over his nose and to light the bit of brown paper. I took my picket and marched proudly up the platform with my cheeses. People falling back respectfully on either side. Train was crowded. I had to get to the into the carriage where there were already seven other people. One crusty old gentleman ejected. I got in, notwithstanding. Putting my cheeses upon the rack, squeezed down with a pleasant smile, said it was a warm day. A few moments passed, then an old gentleman began to fidget. Very close in here, he said. Quite oppressive, said the next man next, said the man next to him. Then they both began sniffing, and the full, at the first sniff, they caught it right on the chest, and rose up without another word and went out. Then a stout lady got up and said it was respectful that a respectful married woman should be harried about in this way, gathered up bag and ate parcels and went. Remaining four passengers sat on, a, on for a while to a solemn-looking gentleman in the corner, who, from his dress and general appearance, seemed to belong to the undertake class, said he put him in mind of a dead baby. The other three passengers tried to get out the door at the same time and hurt themselves. I smiled at the black gentleman and said I ought I thought we were going to have the courage to ourselves, and he laughed pleasantly, and said that some people made such a fuss over a little thing, but even he grew strangely depressed after we had started. So when we reached Crew, I asked him to come and have a drink. He accepted, and we forced our way into the buffet, buffet, where we yelled and stamped and waved our umbrellas for a quarter of an hour, when a young lady came and asked us if we wanted anything. What's yours? I said. Turning to my friend, I have half a crown's worth of brandy, neat. You would please, miss, he responded. He went off quietly after he had drunk it and got into another carriage, which I thought mean. 
From Crow, I had a compartment to myself, for the train was crowded. So, as we drew up at different stations, the people seeing my empty carriage would rush for it. In, rush for it. Hey, uh, here you are, Maria. Come along, plenty of room, all right, Tom. We'll be getting here, they would shout. They would run along, carrying heavy bags, run round the door to get in first. And one would open the door, and that steps and stagger back in the arms of the man behind him. They all would, and they all, they would all come and have a sniff, and then droop off and squeeze into another carriage, pay the difference, and go first. For Houston, I took the cheeses down to my friend's house. When his wife came to the, into the room. She spelt around for an instant. Then she said, what is it? What is it? Tell me the worst. I said, it's cheeses. Tom brought them in Liverpool. I asked him me to bring them up with, them up with me. And I added that I hoped she understood. It had nothing to do with me. She said she was sure of that. But that she would speak to Tom about it when she, he came back. My friend was detained in Liverpool longer than he expected. Three days later, as he hadn't returned home, his wife called on me. She said, what? Did Tom say about those cheeses? I replied he directed they would be kept in a moist place and nobody was to touch them, she said. Nobody's likely to touch them. Had he smelt them? I thought he had, and added he seemed greatly attached to them. You think he would, would be upset, she queried, if I gave him a sovereign to take them away and bury them? If, if I gave a man a sovereign to take them away and bury them? I answered that I thought he would never smell again. An idea struck her. She said, do you mind keeping them for him? Let me send them round to you, madam, I replied. For myself, I have I like a smell cheese and journey the other day with them from Liverpool. Liverpool, I shall never look back upon as a happy ending to a pleasant holiday. But this, in this world, we must consider others. Lady on whose roof at the honour to residing is a widow. And for all I know, possibly an orphan too. There's a strong, I may say, eloquent objection to being with your terms put upon. Presence of your husband's cheeses, a house she would, I distinctly feel regard as put upon. It shall never be said I have put upon the widow and the orphan. And the orphan. Very well then, said my friend's wife, rising. All I have to say is I shall take the children and go to the hotel, on the hotel, to the hotel until all, all those cheeses are eaten. I decline to live any longer in the same house with them. She kept her word, leaving the place in charge of the charwoman, who, when asked if she could stand the smell, replied, What smell? And who had then taken close to the cheese and told her to sniff hard, said she could detect the faint, take the faint odour as melons, it's argued, and this little injury would result, could result to the woman from the atmosphere. And she has left. The hotel bill came to fifteen guineas. My friend, after recommending if, if he, after reckoning every found that the cheeses cost him eight and sixpence a pound. He said he dearly loved a bit of cheese, but it was beyond his means. He determined to get rid of them. Threw them in a the canal, but they had to fish them out again, as the bargemen complained. He said it made them feel quite faint. After that he took them to one night one dark night and left them in the parish mortuary. The coroner discovered them and made a fearful fuss. He said it was a plot to deprive him of his living by making up the corpses. A friend got rid of them, at last, by taking them down to a seaside town and burying them 
on the beach it gained the place quite a reputation visitors had said it was never noticed before how strong the air was the weak cheese and consu- consumptive people used to fall fo- there for years afterwards weak chested and consumptive people used to fall there for ye- years afterwards fond as i am a cheese therefore i told that george was right declining to take any he shan't want any tea, said George, as his face fell at this. But we have a good round, square, slap-up meal at seven. Dinner, tea and supper combined. Harris grew more cheerful. George suggested meat and fruit pies, cold meat, tomatoes, fruit and green stuff. For drink, he took some wonderful sticky concoction of Harris's, which he mixed with water and cold lemonade, plenty of tea, and a bottle of whiskey, in case, as George said, we got upset. Seemed to me that George harped too much on the getting upset idea. It seemed to me the wrong spirit to go about the tripping. But I'm glad we took the whiskey. We didn't take beer or wine. They were our mistake up the river. They make you feel sleepy and heavy. A glass in the evening. You're doing a mulch around the town, looking at the girls. It's all right. It's all right enough. But you don't drink when the sun is blazing down your head. You've got hard work to do. We made a list of things to be taken, a pretty lengthy one. It was before we parted that evening. The next day, which is Friday, we got them all together. Met in the, we got them all together and met in the evening to pack. We got a bit, a big black slum for the clothes and a couple hampers for victuals and cooking utensils. We moved the table up against the window, piled everything in a heap in the middle of the floor, and sat round and looked at it. I said, I packed. I'm rather proud myself on my packing, packing one of those things, many things that I feel I know more about than any other living person. Surprises me to myself. Sometimes, how many of these subjects they are? I pressed upon the fact upon George and Harris, told them they would better leave the whole matter entirely to me. They fell into the suggestion with readiness, added something uncanny about it. George put on a pipe, spread himself over the easy chair, Harris cut his legs on the table and lit a cigar. This is hardly what I intended. What they meant, of course, was I had a boss or job. That Harris and George should potter about under my directions, pushing him aside every now and then with, Oh, you. Here, let me do it. There you are, simple enough, really teaching them, as you might say. They're taking it in the wrong, in the way they did irritate me. Nothing does, there's nothing does injure me more than seeing other people sick about them doing nothing when I'm working. A little man once who used to make me mad that way. You lay on the sofa and watch me doing things by the hour altogether, following me around the room with his eyes. Wherever I went, he said it did him real good to look on me, me messing about. He said it made him feel that life was not an idle dream to be gaped and yawned through, but a noble task full of duty and stern work. He said he often wondered how he could have gone on before he met me, having never having anybody to look at while they worked. Now I'm not like that. I can't sit still and see another man slaving and working. I want to get up and superintend. I walk around with my hands in my pockets. Tell them what to do. It's my energetic nature. I can't help it. However, I did not say anything. I started packing. It seemed a long job, longer job than I thought it was going to be. I got the big bag finished at last. I sat on it and strapped it. Are you going to put the boots in? said Harris. I looked around and found I'd forgotten them. Just, that's just like Harris. Couldn't have said a word till I got the bag shut and strapped, of course. And George laughed. One of those interrogating, senseless, chuckle headed, cr- crack jawed laughs of his. 
you do make me look so wild. Open the bag and packed in the boots in. Then, just as I was going to close it, a horrible idea occurred to me. Had I packed my toothbrush, I didn't know how it is. But I never do... I never do know whether I pack my toothbrush. My toothbrush is a thing that haunts me when I'm travelling. It makes my life a misery. I dream I can't have packed it. I got the cold perspiration. Get out of bed and hunt for it. In the morning, I've packed it before. I will, I've, I've packed it before. I have used it. and have to unpack again to get it. It's always the last thing I turn out of the bag. Then I repack and forget it. I'd have rushed upstairs for it in the last moment. I carry it to the railway station wrapped up in my pocket handkerchief. Of course, I had to turn every mortal thing out now. And of course, I could not find it. Rummage the things up it, things up to much the same state they must have been before the world was created. A chaos reigned. Of course, I found George and Harris's 18 times over. I couldn't find my own. Put the things back on one by one. Held everything up and shook it. Then I found it inside a boot. I repacked once more. When I finished, George asked if the soap was in. I said I didn't care a hang whether the soap was in or whether it wasn't. Slammed the bag to it, soon slammed it, strapped it, and found I had my tobacco patch in it. I had to reopen it. I got the shut finally at 10.05 p.m. There they were. And then there remained the hampers to do. Harry said we should be wanting to start in less than 12 hours' time. I thought he and George had better do the rest. I agreed and sat down. They had a go. Again, in the light-hearted Matt spirit, virtually intending to show me how to do it, I made no comment. Only waited. When George is hanged, when George is hanged, Harris, the worst packer in his world, in this world. I looked at all the piles of plates and cups and kettles, bottles and jars, and pies and stoves and cakes and tomatoes, etc., and felt that the thing would soon become exciting. It did. They started with breaking a cup. That was the first thing they could did. They did not. They did that just to show you that he could do what they could do to get you interested. And Harris packed the strawberry jam on top of the tomato, squashed it, had to pick it out the tomato with a teaspoon. And it was George's turn. He trod on the butter. Don't say anything. Didn't say anything, but came over and sat on the edge of the table and watched him. It irritated me more and more than anything I could have said. I felt that. Made him curious and excited. They stepped on things and put things behind them. They couldn't find them, but they wanted them. They packed the pies in the bottom, put heavy things on top and smashed the pies in. They upset salt all over everything. As the butter, they never saw two men do more than with one and a half, two pints worth of butter in my whole life than they did. But the jewels who got it off his slipper, he tried to put in it in a kettle. I couldn't, I wouldn't go in. What was it? What was it? And what was in? wouldn't come out. He did scrape it out at last and put it down on a chair. Harry sat on it and it stuck to him. He went looking for it all over the room. I had to take an oath. I put down, it down on that chair, said George, saying I'm at, at the empty chair seat. I saw you do it myself not a minute ago, said George Harris. And then they started round the room again looking for it. Then they met again in centre. I stared at one another. Most extraordinary thing I ever heard of, said George. So mysterious, said Harris. Yeah, George got round at the back of Harris and saw it. Well, well, well here it is, it is all the time, exclaimed indignantly. Where? cried Harris, spinning around. Stand still, can't you? Saw George flying over him. And they got off it, got it off and packed it in the, t- it in the teapot. Momentously was all that was in 
was in it, in it all. Of course, man with immensely vision in life to get in the way and be sworn at. He can squish in anywhere where he partly, particularly is not wanted and be a perfect nuisance to make people mad and have things thrown at his head. Then he feels his day has not been wasted. To get somebody to stumble over him, curse him steadily for an hour, his highest aim and object. When he succeeded in accomplishing this, his conceit becomes quite unbearable. Came and sat down on things that just when they were, were wanted to be packed, he laboured under the fixed belief that whatever the tariffs of George reached out their hand for anything, it was his cold, damp nose they wanted. He put his leg into the jam, he worried the teaspoons, he pretended the lemons were rats, got into the hamper and killed three of them. For old Harris could lend him the frying pan. Harris said I encouraged him. I didn't encourage him. Dog like that wouldn't didn't I didn't want any didn't want any encouragement. It's the natural origins and original sin born in him makes him do things like that. The packing was done at twelve fifty. Harris sat on a big hamper and said he hoped nothing would be fell and broken. George said if anything was broken, it was broken, which reflected reflection seemed to comfort him. His old said said he was ready for bed. We're all ready for bed. Harris was to sleep with us that night. We went upstairs. He tossed for the beds. Harris has had to sleep with me, he said. Do you prefer the inside or the outside, Jay? I said I generally prefer to sleep inside a bed. Harris said it was it was old. George said What time shall I wake you, fellas? Harris said seven. I said no, six, because I wanted to write some letters. Harris and I had a bit of a row over it. But at last split the difference and said to half past six. Wake us up at half six thirty, George, he said. George made no answer and we found on going over. He'd been asleep for some time. We placed a bath where he could we could tumble into it on putting, getting out in the morning and went to bed ourselves.